Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Fourteen months have passed since Russia launched its premeditated military invasion of Ukraine, resulting in tens of thousands of casualties to date, alongside Europe's worst refugee crisis since World War II. Nonetheless, fourteen months into this devastating war, neither Moscow nor Kiev, for that matter, managed to close in on their respective political objectives. Hence, a majority of Western intelligence agencies continue to maintain that this European conflict will undoubtedly persist in the foreseeable future and feasibly spill over into other regions of this world. Meanwhile, European nations are seemingly struggling with a rapidly shifting reality within the framework of strategic power competition, all the while faltering migration policies threaten the continent's demographic composition altogether. Good evening, I'm Jonathan Hessen and this is the 15th edition of TV7 Europa Stands. Joining us to dissect Europe's state of internal and foreign affairs includes retired General Klaus Naumann, who is the former Chief of General Staff of the Bundeswehr and Chairman of NATO's Military Committee. Thank you for joining us, General. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Rafael Barraji, who is the CEO of Worldwide Strategy and Spain's former National Security Advisor. Thank Glad you for to be doing. here. Professor Uri Rosenthal, who is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands and Mr. Timo Soini, who is the former Foreign Minister of Foreign Affairs and Deputy Premier of Finland. Thank you for joining us as well, sir. Thank you. General uh, Nauman, we'll start with you. I'd like to focus initially on the war in uh, Ukraine. Of course, this is an ongoing war, an ongoing campaign. Uh, what is your current perspective of the current state of play? Well, first of all, let me start by saying that I'm extremely pleased to be here for the first time on NATO territory. <laughs> I think that is one of the biggest achievements which we have seen in these 14 months of war, which in reality, from my perspective, are not 14 months of war, but almost 12, uh, 10 years of war, since it all started with the annexation of Crimea in uh, 2014. Um, if we look at the situation as it stands, I think we have to state we are confronted with a stalemate, uh, with a PAT situation in which we do not know exactly who is in the upper hand, who is winning. I am very much against all these loose talk of politicians who are speaking about Ukraine is about to win. It's simply not possible to forecast this at this point in time. Although I would keep all fingers crossed that they will succeed at the end, since uh, shouldn't they fail, should they fail, we will see a world in which might is made by power. And that is a world which is very dangerous to all of us. Uh, so I hope, and I keep my fingers crossed, that they will succeed, but of winning I cannot speak. Uh, I, I do not know what the 
where Ukraine will start the spring offensive. I do not know the outcome of this. I even cannot assess it since without knowing where they will wish to attack, uh, I don't know what the chances will be. It is all depends on our Western cohesion to stand by the side of the Ukrainians and to do what we can without talking of deputinization as uh, a prominent figure in Germany has recently done, which in my view is a very stupid remark, since that is very close to regime change. <coughs> if you offer Putin uh, that catchword, he will rally behind him a lot of uh, support in the so-called uh, third world. And there I come back to your introduction. What this war at the end will mean is the beginning of the shaping of a new world order. It's nothing which is limited to Europe. It has a much wider, it has a global dimension. Indeed, Dr. Rafael Barrachi. Well, I think uh, when the invasion started, uh, we all thought at the time that Kiev couldn't, not lo couldn't lose the war, but Russia couldn't either w win the war. After 14 months, the situation has reversed somehow. Now, the offensive is in the hands of Kiev. It's Kiev who cannot win the war, but Putin cannot lose the war either. How do we break this equation? I don't know. We were all expecting an offensive or a counteroffensive in the spring. It's too early to say. But we know is that there are severe hardware problems. Munition is lacking in both sides. But the spirit and the, and the, the ambitions are still there. So there is no political uh, negotiation at all possible in the foreseeable f for the foreseeable future. So if there is a victory, it has to be a military victory. Which side is able to do that? I don't know. Sincerely, I'm confused. But what we know is that, uh, for instance, just independently of what is said on, on TV or in the propaganda, in the narratives, uh, Moscow will run out of tanks <coughs> at the end of 2024 if the consumption of uh, hardware is still in the, in the level of uh, today. But uh, the Ukrainians cannot uh, replenish their stock of ammunition unless the West at, at large, and NATO in particular, provide with more uh, ammo. Uh, are we able to do that? I'm not sure. Uh, the capacities are already under stress of producing more ammunition and more systems. So the war is still to be played out somehow, and uh, it is very difficult to to forecast any, any solution in the near future. One thing we do know for sure, however, that whatever that was leaked from the Pentagon files <laughs> will uh, be rendered uh, redundant regardless, and yeah. uh, ultimately also uh, another term that could be applied in well this uh, scenario is fire dis discipline. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, I look carefully to the, not all, but some important document that have been leaked. And uh, I, I don't think there is anything new. I think the Russians and everyone know, knew about the movements of the troops, the depots and everything. What is uh, striking to me is that with all the information at their disposal, the CIA analysts were so wrong. They took it completely wrong, uh, the intention of Russia, the ability of Russia, uh, and uh, it's surprising. The more information we get, the more wrong we are. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of paradox, no? Interesting, Professor Rosenthal. Well, let, let me say that um, I 
endorse the statement by Klaus Naumann when we talk about winning the war, what are we actually talking about? And uh, let me say that uh, I have a uh, somewhat somber kind of view after 14 months of this Rus russian ukrainian war. Um, I was struck by a message from one of the international experts who said that uh, we are really now already in, even in a balancing act to prevent this Russian-Ukrainian war from becoming a globalized war. That's one. And secondly, I'm mostly interested today in the question whether on both sides, West and the other side, there are uh, red lines to the conflict. And uh, some people say that the red line on the part of the Western countries, especially the United States, of course, is to prevent Ukraine from adventures in Crimea. On the other side, we are talking about China, which supposedly has said to uh, Putin not to engage in nuclear adventures. So um, that is really something. And having said that, you know, we are of course now many people do expect even heavier fights in the spring, spring or spring offensive. What will it bring? At the same time, talking about a war of exhaustion at a certain moment, uh, I'm also curious about the, uh, let me say, the military capabilities on both sides. And for instance, on the Western side, but there, is, there are some experts here in this uh, forum, uh, on the Western side, I hear a lot about the limits to our military production possibilities and capabilities. So that is what is for me in the offing. Very interesting indeed, uh, Mr. Soini. Of course, uh, congratulations on Finland becoming a m member thank you. of uh, the potentially winning side. We don't yeah. know yet, but we'll, time will tell. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, I want, of course, uh, Sofine uh, to, to outline uh, the, the one of the biggest uh, consequences of this conflict is that Finland is a member of the NATO. Mm. Having worked as a minister, as a politician uh, for, for many, many years for the AIM, uh, it's paradoxical or even, <laughs> even somehow awkward to say that Russian invasion to Ukraine enabled Finland to join the NATO. <laughs> because Finnish people with unanimous majority uh, asked and were forcing our politicians to enter the NATO tract and to deliver as quick as possible. And now the outcome of this Putin's aggression is that Russia has 1,340 kilometers more border with NATO than before. <laughs> and this is longer than all the other NATO countries together before this. And, and uh, for our point of view, it was, uh, it was relatively uh, good achievement to get in uh, roughly within a year. But of course, uh, we have uh, one shortage of, 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 uh, in our region 
Sweden is still hanging in the air and, and that cannot be sustainable because if we really look for the defense for Baltic countries and, uh, and, uh, and Baltic Sea area, it is not completely possible without Sweden. But as, as uh, the, the war itself, like, uh, we, we cannot know. Of course, every politician or everybody who is in position must say <laughs> that Ukraine is going to win. And I duly hope so. But th this has been ongoing for 14 months. Tens of thousands of people lost their lives. <coughs> Inflation is running. Interest rates are highing. Uh, the price of food is uh, skyrocketing, so we are we are in in the very thin thin lane with no end in sight, which is also quite yeah. uh, alarming, yeah. uh, considering the fact that uh, leadership needs to be discussed. But uh, General Nalman, I'd I'd like to quote uh, the uh, General Karl von uh, Clausenwich, uh, whose <laughs> uh, association you uh, were resided upon at least uh, at the turn of the century. Um, and he says as follows, war is not merely a political act, but a real political instrument, a constitution of political intercourse, a carrying out of the same by other means. Hmm. What is the Russian policy ultimately, since strong power is one element thereof, but there is also economics, and we're seeing what is happening with BRICS, where uh, Russia is finding itself more and more integrated with uh, India, with China, with uh, Brazil, with South uh, Africa for that matter. At the same time, we're also seeing its diplomatic achievements uh, in countries that are seemingly growing in their opposition to the uh, Western hegemony or that of the United States, which ultimately also threatens uh, cohesion within Europe, which we see the French uh, looking for their own adventures where they seek uh, strategic autonomy from the transatlantic alliance. H how do you interpret all of that? Well, I would start by first saying uh, we should differentiate between uh, Russia's operational and strategic objectives. Operational in, in political terms is, from my perspective, a play for time until the Western cohesion may falter in the upcoming uh, American election campaign as of uh, November this year. They see the preparedness in various Western quarters to initiate peace talks, which all help nobody else but Putin since uh, as soon as he knows that he can win at least a little bit, he has gained. Since his attack has then materialized in territorial gains, in political gains. But that is only the operational objective. I think in strategic terms, Putin is aiming at the creation of elements of a future world order in which he wants to establish, possibly building on what you in your introduction called BRICS, uh, Brazil, uh, India, China, South Africa, and Russia, that he may build on that a new economic uh, powerhouse, 
which would be a competitor to our Western world, since we all depend to some extent on these <coughs> BRICS countries. We have to reduce our dependence. We have to de-risk, as Mrs. von der Leyen had put it. But it seems to me that he is aiming at least at uh, some cooperation, some new form of cooperation, which would focus on uh, South, South Africa, Brazil, possibly India. And of course, China is already an, uh, an ally of, of Russia. So if that is the strategic objective, it could lead to a strategic demise of the West. And that would be his ultimate strategic objective. Interesting indeed, Dr. Barrahi. Well, let me remind uh, Ronald Rathfeld the uh, phrase that when he said that we, there are certain things that we know that we know, certain things that we know we don't know, and there are things we don't know we don't know. And I believe we are in a moment where the unknown unknowns are greater than the rest. So this war and this, situa this situation is full of paradoxes. For instance, let me take uh, the congratulations for Finland to become a new member of NATO. But if that is the best we can get out of the war, we should send a medal to Putin for, best for being the best recruiter of the month for NATO. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and that's not the reality. The reality <laughs> is that, okay, we got Finland and probably Sweden soon yeah. after. But on the other side, there is a new partnership between Beijing and Moscow, and uh, also Moscow and Tehran. And that's very disturbing, because this is a long-term strategic challenge for the West. Secondly, uh, we have been united because of the, the current ad U.S. administration has made a, a makeshift in favor of uh, promoting <coughs> the European interest. But in two years' time, we will have a new administration in Washington. Uh, maybe if there's a Republican candidate, whoever it is, the, the willingness to keep the ongoing support for Ukraine will weigh out somehow, and they will ask the Europeans to step in with a military and financial aid. Are we ready? I don't see the European vision still uh, after those 14 months. We, we have too many divergences. Uh, so um, to me, it's not crystal clear, the situation. I'm, I'm very, very concerned because things are moving too fast. <coughs> and we are not paying enough attention to all the nuances of the strategic situation on the table. Professor mm Rosenthal. -hmm. Um, First, let me let me um, uh, confirm this point about the BRICS. Um, Brazil now Lula as pres as a president, and they really are going for it. Um, it all uh, belongs to the broader picture, uh, which we don't accept in a way in the Western minds, and that is that Russia is not at all so isolated, even cornered, as we would like it to be. Um, and it is not just the BRICS, which, by the way, are calling themselves now again non-aligned, um, but it is also a broader picture. For instance, when you look at the um, Russia-China uh, gathering in, in the context of the Shanghai Cooperation Council, it's very remarkable that today Iran 
and Saudi Arabia are being accepted as observers in this cooperation council. That's one. A second point which I would like to raise is actually that in, this, in a similar vein, um, when we talk about the position of Russia, of course, due to the uh, war with Ukraine, China has become really the number one and Russia has become the number two in their uh, mutual relation. At the same time, I would say that what we should also take into serious consideration is the fact that while we say that the West is morally value, values-wise superior to the other side, the other side is claiming today more than ever, Xi Jinping, moral superiority on their part. So it's not that easy story at all at the moment. There that is a cultural uh, disconnect there Absolutely. indeed. Absolutely. But when you look at this, and I, I heard at least from uh, two separate uh, intelligence analysts from separate countries which provided their own perspectives to this, it seems like China is not yet willing to support Russia in the war in Ukraine <coughs> for one main reason. It still is not convinced that the Europeans are that committed to the transatlantic alliance and see this as an opening possibly for sealing the deal. Do you see this as a possible equation? That, that, is, a, that, is, ser that is a serious matter to take into consideration for sure. At the same time, when I look at what uh, Xi Jinping in the last People's Congress has uh, said, it is really a remarkable uh, difference with the way in which Chinese leadership has, uh, has uh, actually uh, stated their cause over so many decades. It is now for the first time that they really claim to be superior, morally superior, to what we in the West can deliver to our people. And that is, that is not that unimportant. It is important indeed. And uh, of course, um, China is, some people say that right from the beginning, February uh, last year, uh, Russia has actually maneuvered itself into a sort of puppet kind relation to the Chinese brother. But at the same time, China needs Russia in a way, you know, and when we look at the non-aligned countries, Russia in, in some remarkable and very curious way is more accepted in the non-aligned world than the Chinese, which have uh, exploited them to the fullest over the last few years. Well, I think the term non-aligned is a little problematic as they're all sure, aligned with China sure. at this point. Yeah, but, sure. uh, Mr. Soyna, I'd like to hear your perspective on this. And to what degree do you see the BRICS, uh, which is this uh, mm. uh, alignment of sorts under Russian and Chinese leadership, mm. yeah. as a true alternative to the Western G7? I think so that they are increasing in importance. And if we look, for example, what has happened lately in the United Nations, Russia was uh, the, the president for the Security Council for one month, mm -hmm. just very late. And uh, Russia have 
uh, a thousand officials working in the United Nations. And if we look the broader picture, like India, South Africa, Brazil, Lula, and everything else, their influence is big. And the amount of soya they are exporting to China is huge. It's, it's huge. So these uh, connections, uh, they, are, they are in a way tightening in the, in, the, in the folk when we are just looking at the war. Everything else is happening in the sidelines all the time. And, and that is really dangerous. And the big picture, of course, in the European perspective is that now when UK is very committed to transatlantic uh, mm. relations, but when they are out from the European Union, what is going to happen with the transatlantic binds? Then we are going to have European Parliament elections next spring. So what kind of outcome can there be found? Because it's the European Parliament and Commission are federal <coughs> structures and then uh, the national governments are uh, the kind of capital uh, uh, run mm. eras and how they will fix together to the bigger picture. And, and, and this really is the, the story, story of the month. And, and, and then India, Modi, seems to be a uh, very solid base at the moment. China, uh, uh, they don't have to worry about the outcome of the elections, but everybody in the West usually have to be worried. Usually the, the, the governments are ousted and opposition does win. And this is very big thing. What would happen to Macron? What would happen to France? Who is the flagship of the European Union? Who is running the European Union exactly. and to what direction? And uh, if mm -hmm. I may add about the Indian yeah. angle, I think that Jay Shankar, at least in his outspoken, the top diplomat of mm -hmm. uh, New Delhi, yeah. holds quite some grudges towards the European continent uh, yeah. for historic uh, Yeah, that's uh, right. That perspective. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Uh, General Nauman, yeah. I'd like to uh, take another step in, in a certain direction. Professor Rosenthal mentioned the fact that China has asked Russia not to utilize nuclear uh, weapons in the context of uh, the war vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, of course, for strategic interests uh, at that. But uh, when we're looking at the latest reports, we see that mm -hmm. both Beijing and Moscow have uh, pledged, according to those specific uh, officials who were cited in those reports, uh, nuclear assistance to the Iranians uh, when it comes to proliferation. In such a scenario, do you see uh, a certain uh, nuclear arms race potentially developing within this uh, uh, context at a time when Russia is already very heavily involved? We saw uh, the various meetings that uh, were between Sergei Lavrov and uh, uh, the foreign minister of Turkey communicating about uh, the Russian nuclear reactor in uh, Turkey particularly, and, and it seems like those Western sanctions that have been very supposedly crippling, at least promoted as such, uh, not really taken seriously by many Western partners and even a NATO member. Well, unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, the sanctions were not taken too serious. 
and uh, Irwin made a lot of progress by using all forms of uh, legal or illegal cooperation. North Korea, which you didn't mention, I think played uh, not quite an unimportant role in providing some technology. Um, we have to, from my perspective, we have to regard Iran as what I would call a virtual nuclear power. That is a, a country which is only a couple of months away from the capability to produce at least, a, a, let's say, a simple nuclear warhead, which could do a lot of damage. Should that happen, should they indicate to the world that they have a nuclear warhead, they would be at the same level in which, at which for a, a couple of years ago uh, North Korea was. And uh, we would then undoubtedly see a nuclear arms race in the Middle East at the doorsteps of Europe. Um, in a situation in which none of these potential nuclear countries in, in the Middle East would have the experience and the wisdom of the established nuclear powers, uh, which learned that they have the capabilities, but they, they knew at the same time that they will never use it. Uh, these countries might be tempted to use nuclear warheads in a local conflict, which then automatically would become a global conflict. Dr. Bardochi? Well, I think uh, the Chinese uh, officially declare that they are not going to use first the, any nuclear uh, weapon against anyone else. But the problem is that, for instance, they don't consider Taiwan as an external land. It's part of the internal domestic problem. Are they allowed to use the nuclear weapon inside their country? Probably yes. And what I see now in <laughs> Russia is a, a path taken to the Chinification of the doctrine. Uh, you ask Putin lately, uh, about uh, the nature of Ukraine, he will see it's a domestic problem. R Ukraine is part of Russia. Uh, so it is, we are moving into a very ambiguous situation, no? and, uh, and, and that ambiguity is producing less and less stability. Um, it's more prone to escalate unintentionally if there is some, some mistakes. No? Uh, having said that, on the other front, in the Middle East, I think uh, a nuclear Iran will be a very, very dangerous uh, country and also create a dangerous situation because they will have just a few warheads probably promoting the thinking that you can take them all with a chirurgical strike. Uh, they also don't have in place yet, and we don't expect them to have it, a uh, control system of command like we had in the during the Cold War, both in the in the West and in the in the Soviet Union, so that the, the the trigger happy finger will be almost there, and that has to be taken into consideration among <coughs> other countries. I think we are moving. I mean, we lived for many years, and, and at least ourselves, in a situation where the world was divided in two uh, superpowers, sphere of influence, the bipolarity. Then we moved to the unipolar moment of the United States. At the, at the beginning of this century, and now we are in a polarless 
world, no? where the middle countries are taking advantage to advance their, their agendas, and where the situation is much more fluid. For instance, the China-Russia relations is less than an alliance, but more than a partnership. How do we uh, move ahead? What content, what security guarantees we'll have? We don't know yet. It's too early, unfortunately. Uh, but the problem is that we are not historians. We are political <laughs> practitioners, uh, analysts, so we cannot wait for two centuries to see the <laughs> French Revolution on, on, on perspective. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, if I, uh, oh, may please. I just add one thought to that? I think what we should keep in mind politically is a country which possesses nuclear weapons uh, has the, enjoys the advantage that it will never be sanctioned. Um, we see that very clearly in the Ukrainian conflict. We speak about the red line Crimea. Mm. What is it else than our self-deterring effect of respecting the nuclear power of Russia? <laughs> we are afraid that they may use nuclear weapons and for that reason Crimea is a red line, <laughs> which is wrong. We, sh we should not except the self-deterring effect of a nuclear country. It is a risky proposition, I know that very well, but if we, if we don't take this risk, many countries in the world will strive to get nuclear weapons in order to be free of all sanctions. Well, y you said in the past that the best way to avoid war is to prepare for uh, for one, and uh, ultimately it doesn't seem that leadership at this <coughs> stage is truly preparing for anything, uh, which brings me to another quote that you yeah. said that uh, uh, immediately rung in, in my mind, and that is leadership is not about being popular, it's about making tough decisions and taking yeah. responsibility for them. Unfortunately, we don't have those kind of leaders these days, <laughs> since everybody are uh, relying upon TikTok generations, and, and I don't know what. But there's something more than will. No? I think in the last 20 years, uh, all governments in the West decided that instead of having the massive armed forces that we had during the Cold War, we move into what we can call bonsai armies. We have everything like a tree except the size. It's much more smaller. And now we are facing a mass warfare again in Europe. And we can't, we can't really deal with that. We don't have the ammunition. We don't have the capabilities to produce them. We don't have the tanks. I mean, how many tanks do the Netherlands has now? None, I think. How many tanks the UK had? Uh, 22. We have them again, but within the German context. I don't know. <laughs> so we have been shrinking <laughs> in our capabilities. <laughs> and producing capabilities takes <coughs> money, men and women, and time. Indeed. And we don't have it. <laughs> well, uh, as, uh, I don't want to tease Professor Rosenthal too too much about this topic, but we do lease well, right now 18 tanks from the German armed forces sure. in the Netherlands, which is of course for training purposes. Yes, right. We have bought our armed forces, the the army at least. We have bought them now since a few days, completely under German aegis. So that's the situation. But let me let me uh, come back to this question about the nuclear side. Please do. For me, the, the situation is bleak, very bleak indeed, somber. Uh, let's look at two of the, the big culprits, uh, North Korea and Iran. I'm very straightforward in this. Uh, Donald Trump had his, had his terrible fiasco with North Korea. 
That's one. Iran, I'm in the midst of a lot of efforts to help out the dissidents, etc. there in Iran now. Um, Iran, uh, demonstrations, brutal repression as never before. Um, drones being brought to Russia. Um, destabilization in the region. Uh, missiles going not only to Hezbollah, but also to Hamas. Hamas firing missiles to Isra northern Israel from Lebanon. New development. Fourth, nuclear. Ten years ago I was a Minister of Foreign Affairs in my country, and we were already amidst of this story about the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which which had all the records on mislead, on uh, fraud, misleading uh, stories from Iran and what have you. And we were really at the brinkmanship of doing something about it from the Western side. It didn't happen. Then we had 2015, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which I, together with my friend Bardaji, for instance, said to Trump, you know, stop it. Yep. And what a mess. <laughs> and, you know, at the moment, you see it going all over again. And meanwhile, we have forgotten that from the Israeli side, long time ago already, it was said it's not so much only about Iran having these nuclear weapons at its disposal, but their capability and capacity to have them within a nick of time. And we are far beyond that already. Now, that brings me to the conclusion that we are really not up to doing, th doing the things which we should do about it. And I'm afraid that we will not do it. And uh, there are all these stories in Washington, too, you know, about how to behave with the sanctions, etc. But nevertheless, we are giving in to Iran. And this should stop. And I can tell you that today, because as I said, I'm in the midst of it, with a committee, you know, which really goes for a different kind of regime in, in Iran, you know, the people in Iran are also looking with dismay to the way in which we are handling this nuclear threat from the side of Iran. That is what I uh, I think it's important to say that uh, even though Trump uh, cozying up to uh, the leader of North Korea was uh, something that I didn't enjoy uh, seeing either, um, it started with Bill Clinton sure, and then sure. continued with uh, sure. uh, George W. Bush and sure. Obama uh, hitting let, the nail. Let, let me say that I heard Bill Clinton say, nearly face to face with a couple of people, I was in the middle of them, that he considered North Korea to be the biggest threat to the United States. But he didn't do anything about it. No, absolutely. And under the International Atomic Energy Agency, with such a absolutely. clear proven case study, repeating itself time and time again and expecting different results right now under the Biden administration, Albert Einstein had his own saying about this. Yes. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Soini, uh, your take on this? Yeah. Uh, first, uh, I want uh, us all to remember what happened to Ukraine. It used to have nuclear weapons. 
uh, Bill Clinton's administration mm -hmm. guaranteed their safety when they are going to get rid of them. What happened? What kind of an example they give to everybody, in, included, included those uh, North Korean dictators or whoever else, that can you be trusted reliably if you don't get it? And then we have this triangle, Russia, Iran, Syria. Russia and Iran rescued Syria. What is now happening is that uh, Iran is giving drones to Russia. Russia and Syria, they are connected. Israel have to negotiate with Russia sure. uh, in order to operate in uh, Syria and in Lebanon. There are so many different things going under the surface and what is the big strategy of the West to, to all of this. And of course it's dead serious thing if the Iran is going to have a nuclear weapon. Even so they, they will take time in order to be uh, uh, comprehensive in, in that sense. But if they are going to get it, what about Saudi Arabia? What sure. about Turkey? What about Egypt? So that is why this is utmost important to, to pro prohibit it. Indeed. Well, uh, Saudi Arabia pays uh, to maintain the nuclear arsenal of Pakistan, so yep. we all know where they'll get it from. Yeah, but <laughs> and, they, and they have the missiles from China. Indeed. No, absolutely. They already uh, received yeah. it, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, let's move to the next thing. And I think w this entire mess is obviously currently as... Um, the United States is still the leader of the free world, at least uh, uh, figuratively speaking. Uh, and it seems that the transatlantic uh, alliance is uh, being threatened to a certain degree. We just heard uh, a couple of weeks ago French President Emmanuel Macron <laughs> returning from Beijing with uh, new fresh ideas about potentially challenging this alliance. General? Well, I, I wrote a uh, a little piece on that, which was published uh, a couple of days ago in the Frankfurter Allgemeine, in which I uh, criticized President <coughs> Macron for what I call his strategic stupidity. Um, since uh, you cannot, in a situation in which we are, in which we have only two, uh, I should say, potential weapons in our hands. The one is the cohesion of our Western countries, and the second is the knowledge that we still have a system which is superior to anything else which was ever created on on this earth, and that is that we established the rule of law, which means the individual citizen is protected against the power of their own state by the rule of law. And that is, that is the instrument which the Xi's and Putin's of this world are afraid of. They fear it. They know that it is attractive for human people. And if we know that, we have to maintain cohesion. And whether we like autonomy or not, um, we should not talk about it if we have nothing in our hands which would enable Europe
to be an autonomous actor on the world uh, scene. We, Europe is a nice catchword, but the capabilities which have to be behind the idea of an autonomous Europe, they are not there. So I, I'm not opposed to the idea. I think it is, it is necessary that Europe gets adults, which means to be capable of acting in all domains of international politics. But it will require time, and at the moment we don't have it. We depend on the United States of America, and that will remain so for, I should say, a couple of years, if not decades. And if we know that, and if we know that we are uh, at the brink of a systemic conflict, then we have to maintain cohesion between Europe and the United States of America, otherwise we endanger ourselves. Indeed. Well, uh, talking about bonsai trees, uh, <laughs> can we not rely on, on the largest tree of them all at this stage, considering the fact that uh, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, who does still maintain, of course, France and Britain do have their own nuclear arsenals. Uh, yeah. The French uh, President demands uh, to a certain degree and keeps raising this matter up in, uh, time and again about a strategic autonomy from the United States. Well, I think there are some realities there. I think uh, the, the strategic movements of the United States is moving away from Europe, if not from the rest of the world at all, completely. No? But I think um, this has been stopped somehow <coughs> for the time being, thanks to Putin and the invasion in Ukraine. But it may reassume according to the different situation in the near future, no? yeah, according to who is in the White House. Uh, having said that, I think uh, Emmanuel Macron has a complex or of uh, decaffeinated or little Napoleon in his mind that want to be the center of the European universe. No? And we have to remind him that he first uh, approached the invasion of Russia was to mediate between Kiev and Moscow. And now he's trying to play the same role uh, with uh, Beijing. No? He's always the mediator. No? Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the rest of the countries will follow him in that in that uh, path no and i think uh, he's he's wrong i think uh, the strategic stupidity is is, is clear, crystal clear no in that sense uh, as a spaniard i may have to remind you that a few centuries ago we were invaded by france so i'm not anti-french <laughs> but uh, i mean it's, it's, it's a little bit <laughs> difficult for me to swallow that the, the paris is going to dictate or is going to be the new washington for the rest of the europeans no? i don't think with three or four nuclear submarines enough for macron or anyone else in the Elysee to be the leader of europe i think europe has been built on the combination of germany and france uh, the balance of the uk and the rest okay in a, in a kind of uh, follow pa pattern no? Uh, that is broken. The relation between Germany and France is not what it used to be. The UK is out, and the rest, we are confused, perplexed, and uh, trying to get uh, the maximum benefit from the situation mm -hmm. for anyone. Professor Rosenthal, will uh, the Netherlands take the place of uh, Great Britain in mediating between France and Germany? Well, the Netherlands are, of course, the biggest among the smaller countries in the uh, European uh, Union. And uh, let me say, uh, last week, uh, Emmanuel Macron was, was in The Hague uh, to see um, uh, our Prime Minister Mark Rutte. 
And it was quite, rem quite something that in the press conference afterwards, uh, Emmanuel Macron was of course defending his uh, blunder on Taiwan, playing it a little bit down, but still stucking, sticking to it and talking strategic autonomy, while Mark Rutte, who is a close friend of Emmanuel Macron, nevertheless said that he is a transatlantic guy. So there you see the story. When it is about the European situation at the moment, I would say that uh, indeed the Netherlands, of course, uh, can play a role in between Berlin and uh, Paris. Uh, by the way, we lost a good friend in the UK. Uh, we lost on the German side a good personal friend of um, uh, Mr. Rutte with the um, departure of uh, Angela Merkel. So that's the situation we are in. Uh, let, let me say that, that with regard to this strategic autonomy story on the part of uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, I would say that when he is talking about these sort of concepts, it looks as if he is only talking from the Paris angle, you know, and looking at a few other countries in Europe, which he might in his mind lead one way or the other, but he's forgetting about the situation which is developing in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, even in Southern Europe, where he is not the number one in a way, you know, at least uh, undisputed. So uh, I would say we have been occupied too, the Netherlands, by the French, but um, uh, that having been said, I would say that um, he is overstating his case, I, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm thinking so. Well, the French conquered a lot, including Moscow at some point. Sure. Uh, maybe yeah. the Ukrainians can learn something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we haven't been co conquered by France. We have been <laughs> conquered by Swedes and, and, and Russian, uh, Russian, uh, Russian Empire. But, uh, but I'm worried about if, if our uh, transatlantic uh, relations are loosened. For example, TTIP, uh, the, the free trade agreement, nobody talks about it anymore. Mm. The, 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 uh, the role of the state is very big in, in, in France's uh, mind uh, to, to govern and we all know that we need growth, we need stability, jobs and what we have had, Covid and war and uh, rise of prices of gas, electricity, mm. food, interests and inflation uh, and, and, and this, is, this is really what worries people and the peop there can be social and political unrest but still it's, it's uh, in our greatest interest that what will happen in US this current, uh, current uh, administration was interested enough to, to, to get a signal and make it uh, flesh that the enlargement of the NATO is not only possibility but also reality. But what would happen in the in, in US in next elections and the role and rise of China, we have TikTok, 5G and everything else. Who, who, who will know 
what we are voluntarily giving our information but to our rivalries uh, or our enemies. I, I don't want to undermine the, the, the importance of uh, Finland becoming a member of NATO, but what if Kiev announced officially his decide to become a member of NATO? Do you think the Americans and the rest of the Allies will respond in the same fast track way? No. No, no that's impossible. So. Sure. But there we have a. In that Sweden. Sweden is the next in one. In that case, we <laughs> have in the case of uh, Ukraine becoming a NATO member, we have a clear legal context. Yeah. We never accepted a country which is in war. Mm. And yeah. uh, that mm -hmm. will remain so. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but that's a, it's, it's but not written. It's, it's, uh, but let me come back to the issue which we all, I think, agreed upon. We Europeans need and continue to depend on the United States of America. <laughs> but nations do not know friends, yeah. they only know interests. Mm. And I think it, and it's more so though, General, if I may interject, it's a two-way street because the United States without <laughs> Europe is also worthless. Th th I was about to say that we, they need us as well, but we should also understand, and that is the big mistake of Monsieur Macron, that we have to be on the side of the Americans if their and our common interests are at stake. That's, and that's, exactly, that's exactly the, yeah. the situation because, let's, let's face it, within the United States there are very many doubts about the, about the possibility of having to fight a two-front war both on our side, Ukraine, and there in China. I don't talk about the question whether it is a wise kind of proposition, but it is in their minds. And to say at that very moment that you let uh, the Americans go uh, alone on it's one of the two... It's a, tragi a tragic mistake. Yeah. And we should understand and sh should tell our people time and again, 50% of the world trade is passing through the Straits of Taiwan and the Straits of Malacca. If these straits are strangled, it's out for Europe. So it's well our interest. That's the reality. You know, in order to become strategic autonomous, you need to have first strategic thinking and a common strategic view. And we are lacking both of them in Europe. We don't know how to think about the strategy anymore. No? And to take, of course, also yeah. into account the Iranian question, which uh, you discussed sure. uh, at length sure. earlier, if there's going to be even uh, an obvious step in that direction, uh, there is going to be a regional war there, not only involving Israel, but involving Turkey and uh, other countries in the region that would ultimately cripple a third of European imports right. from that region yeah. when we're talking about energy and then ruling out everything and becoming 100% right. dependent on North Africa and the United States, it will shift er everything uh, from that perspective. We have roughly two minutes left. Uh, if uh, I may request a, a final or closing sentence from each and every one of you, what should our viewers focus on for this upcoming month? General, we'll start with you. Well, I think for this upcoming month, if that is the limit, we should focus on standing by Ukraine and do all we can to help them to uh, ward off a Russian victory. Well, I think we have to remind everyone that warfare is back in history and in Europe. And if we still believe that we need to 
move forward with uh, electric tanks, we all be doomed and, and dead by the time we arrive to this goal. Professor Rosenthal? I would say that more than uh, throughout these 14 months, we have seen it already, and we will need, we will be in desperate need of Western resolve over the coming months, if not year. Support Ukraine and take care of our economics, because if we are not taking care of our economics, we cannot help anybody. Uh, on that topic, uh, Mr. Soini, uh, the economic situation, it's, it's still deteriorating, it deteriorating is, in yeah, certain areas, but also improving in others? Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm very worried uh, we are at the verge of banking crisis. I, it's, it's not over yet what started in California. Unfortunately, indeed. Uh, well, this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank General Klaus Naumann, Dr. Rafael Bardachi, Professor Uri Rosenthal, and Mr. Timo Soini for being part of today's panel. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank all of you at home. Until next time, a good evening from here in Helsinki. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.